And welcome back to another episode on our ongoing series of reading through Sean McMeekin's 2021 text, Stalin's War, A New History of World War II. Uh, continuing on as we go through Section 2, Chapter 11, Summit in Berlin, The Four Power Pact, I am once again joined by Yellow Lantern 19. How are you, buddy? I'm doing very good. Um... We sound a little bit congested because I think we're all getting over colds or allergies, but we must soldier on to tackle this giant book of that is contains a wealth of valuable information and neat revisionism covering this time period. Absolutely. So we're going to just dive right into it. You know the routine. Mr. Lantern, just interrupt me whenever I'm reading and we can go from there and discuss. Thanks. Alrighty. Summit in Berlin, the Four Power Pact. At a ceremony in Berlin on September 27, 1940, the foreign ministers of Italy, Japan, and Japan, Galezzo Chianu and Saburo Kurosu, affixed to their signatures alongside ribbon troops to a new tripartite pact. Although trumpeted to the world as a formidable military alliance, in truth the agreement was more symbolic than substantial, as it contained no binding provisions regarding military cooperation. The symbolism, however, was significant. The tripartite pact represented a repudiation, ideologically or at least semantically, of the previous agreement between the three powers, the Anti-Comintern Pact of 1936. This time, the signatories were declaring their opposition not to Soviet communism, but to, quote, the Anglo-Saxon world order, end quote, with the subtext that the signatories were devoted to peace, whereas the British Empire, and by extension the United States, wished to prolong the war. Japan agreed to acknowledge the leadership of Italy and Germany in the establishment of a new order in Europe, and that the Axis powers recognized, in turn, Japanese supremacy over Greater East Asia. That Anglo-Saxon term, where have we heard that before? Anglos could be here, we wondered. <laughs> this much was clear, but the role of both hostile and friendly third parties, such as the United States and the Soviet Union, was up for interpretation. Ideally, the Germans would have liked for the tripartite pact to intimidate the United States into staying neutral. The November presidential election was imminent, and Roosevelt's pro-British stance was under increasing scrutiny, owing to the isolationist sentiments embodied in the huge America First movement. So carefully was Roosevelt treading in his campaign for a third term that he promised American mothers and fathers at a rally in Boston on October 30th, days just before the election, your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign wars. Whether or not Roosevelt was intimidated by the tripartite pact, the pacifist line this arch-interventionist president took in the heat of an election campaign suggested that most Americans remained desperate to stay out of the European war. Hmm. When have we ever heard this before about a presidential promising not to escalate or get involved in foreign affairs, only to later reverse course, or had basically been supporting one belligerent and said power either through covert aid or military equipment, and just said, oh, well, suddenly, for no reason at all, we're now a hostile party, and thus we have to go to war. Could have fooled me. What could I say? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with the sort of contraband that was on the Lusitania, and uh, definitely has that reminder there. But again, the, the scars of the First World War were so present that even 
Uh, it, it would literally take Pearl Harbor to begin to convince American minds about going to war in Europe or really anywhere. That is true. There was, I remember, even I was looking at the old polling data from the 30s, you know, just before 1941, and the average sentiments against intervention was 70, 80 percent opposed, even in the pro-Anglophile and pro-British sentiments within the South, which was the most most um, martialistic and gung-ho to help defend the British. Even still, it, it wasn't high enough as a tipping point to be enough to sustain uh, intervention. Yeah, absolutely. As for the Soviets, suspicions about the tripartite pact were neutral. It was a mere cosmetic touch-up of the anti-Comintern pact and thus still inspired by opposition to communism. Was it meant to replace the Moscow Pact of August 1939 or to complement it? As a courtesy, Ribbentrop authorized Ambassador Schulenberg to inform Molotov about the impending pact a day early on September 26th. Schulenberg reassured Molotov that the pact in no way prejudices the political status of agreements between the three signatory powers and the Soviet Union. In an official edition of Pravda on September 30th, Molotov declared that the tripartite pact was merely a restatement of the already existing state of hostilities between Italy, Germany, and Japan on the one side, and Britain and the United States on the other. As for the division of Europe and Asia into spheres of interests, Molotov declared that this arrangement would ultimately depend on the relations of the warring powers and the outcome of the war. Challenging German claims that the war with Britain was all but won, Molotov noted that America's capitalist might had not been brought to bear yet. Although the United States, he wrote, has not yet formally entered the war on the side of England against Germany, Italy, and Japan, it is abundantly clear that in reality, the United States finds itself in the same war camp as the opponents of these powers in both the European and Asian hemispheres. The Soviet Union, Molotov concluded, remained committed to, quote, peaceful neutrality in any ongoing great power conflicts, so long as the stance of neutrality depends solely on her. It was a clever response, full of the usual Soviet obfuscation. In the view of history of the previous 12 months in which the Red Army had entered Manchurian territory to fight the Japanese and had invaded six other sovereign countries, Molotov's assertion that the Soviet Union was devoted to peaceful neutrality was risible on its face, although it did not mean the world would not be believed by communist sympathizers in, the, in Britain and in the United States. What Molotov had really done was declare Stalin's distance from Hitler's war aims. However, unlikely this was to happen in the view of bellicose anti-German stance of both Churchill and Roosevelt, Hitler and Ribbentrop clearly hoped, by publicizing the tripartite pact, to bring an end to the war out of sheer intimidation of London and Washington. Stalin, by contrast, wanted the war to go on so that he would not have to face Hitler's triumphant armies alone, also in the hope that the United States would be drawn into the war alongside Britain to counterbalance Germany in Europe and Japan in Asia. In July 1940, Japan had bullied Britain into closing down the Burman Road used to supply Chiang Kai-shek's Chinese army overland from Southeast Asia, an illustration of both Japanese strength and Britain's strategic isolation after the fall of France. With the United States still formally neutral and the Luftwaffe and the Wehrmacht poised threateningly across the channel, Churchill was loath to risk going to war against Japan, but a Japanese war would suit, Stalin, would suit Stalin's purposes admirably. The best chances for further Soviet expansion lay in the global conflict, which would fatally weaken both of the warring capitalist camps. 
It would then be up to Stalin to choose the moment to strike. And I mean, this whole section here is just a, a large reiteration for our new listeners of a lot of the thesis that gets put out by McMeekin in this text is, mm -hmm. is that a lot of what of the of the Soviet and by extension Stalin and Molotov's machinations were of this foreign policy during the early parts of the war and even prior to America's entrance is how can I bloody the rest of the world and expand sort of the you know to expand communism I mean the the first section of this book talks about you know, the, the popular front and antagonizing socialists and social democrats to join communist causes and to be as sympathetic to the Soviet Union as humanly possible, both in government and in the public sector and in the media. And uh, again, this this really does show you that Stalin had way more competency than I think other contemporary historians give him credit for. Yeah, he was not just simply Uncle Joe. He knew how to maneuver his belligerent adversaries against each other as well. And some of this kind of what you restated was also something mentioned by uh, the other famous thesis of, of the sim Victor Suvorov, which um, McMeekin makes allusions to later on in this book. But um, a lot of the stuff it really would you would find common ground among serious historians that look and see that, you know, far from being a communism in one country type, Stalin was just as committed as a Marxist to the to the principles of world revolution as Trotsky was. It was just how they get, go about it. You know, he preferring more the covert methods of, of control and dealing with, you know, the fifth columns in each country via, you know, their communist parties or connections, and even, you know, taking out the Trotskyites as we see in the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just this is the... Uh, what's that Kovefe Anon tweet? He's like, it's time for you to sort of kind of recognize that communism is the is the winner of this conflict. And yeah. if you want proof of that, I mean, this text alone is going to give you a corpus of Soviet archive and primary sources to cite from. Where no, their motivating factor wasn't just to to bloody these guys up so they don't have to take the brunt of the casualties. It was well, if we can cause capitalist states to collapse, then we can get the revolutions that we didn't succeed in the the nineteen twenties and thirties with all the red scares in the Western world. Yes, and if you've read any of the uh, articles by um, Mystery Grove on Substack and all the other things, you would find out that much of the red scare was actually completely justified considering the amount of anarchism, anarchist, socialist bombings that occurred throughout the 1910s to the 1930s in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. Back in Europe, Hitler was unsure how to fit the Soviet Union into his, quote, new order. Neutralizing Stalin had been necessary to avoid a two-front war, while access to Soviet raw materials had enabled Germany to circumvent the British blockade. But this was an awkward relationship at best, and it was becoming more awkward all the time. Previously separated by a belt of buffer states, the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany now shared a border thousands of miles long, a frontier now bristling with heavily armed sentries and spies. In Finland and Romania, Soviet encroachment had been threatening enough to German economic interests that the Germans were blanketing both countries with military advisors. 
On September 27th, the same day Ribbentrop signed the Tripartite Pact, German diplomats in Helsinki signed a military defense agreement with Finland. At least 430 German troops had arrived in Romania by October 1940 and two fighter squadrons by early November. Antonescu's government, in turn, promised not only to pay the expenses of these German detachments, but also to step up oil deliveries to the Reich. Compounding Hitler's frustration, Stalin, though cold-shouldering Churchill and Ambassador Cripps, maintained the presence of neutrality in the World War, even while happily pocketing territory in the slipstream of Hitler's military victories. Molotov might hint at dissatisfaction being excluded from the Tripartite Pact, but then Stalin had adamantly refused to declare war on Britain. German diplomats stressed their cooperation with Russia. Russian diplomats played this down at every turn. Soviet duplicity was mind-boggling. And it was also the, you know, duplicity was also the policy of the Soviet Union yeah. uh, since its inception. Yeah, so maybe mind-boggling is kind of an understatement. More like the um, modus operandi of Soviet policy. Absolutely. It was time Hitler decided to force the Soviets to put up or shut up. Clearly not wanting to be pinned down, Stalin waited eight days before responding to Ribbentrop's invitation of October 13 to come to Berlin and iron out German-Soviet differences, agreeing to send Molotov in his stead in November. The delay did allow time did allow Hitler time to meet with Franco and Hendea in this, on the Spanish border on October 23rd, although this turned out to be a mixed blessing. Sensing that Hitler's diplomatic options were narrowing, Franco demanded an exorbitant price for entering the war alongside Germany, including large territorial gains in France, and denied Hitler permission to send German troops through Spain to attack the British base at Gibraltar. The failure of the Franco summit was a poor omen for Molotov's visit in Berlin. It also raised the stakes as Franco's stubborn stand at the western end of the Mediterranean accentuated the urgency of the Balkan questions on the eastern end. So can I, um, I haven't. Yeah, by all means. So what Franco was doing here is that um, he knew he couldn't actually enter the war because his country was still recovering from the three-year war that had killed 500,000 Spaniards and other groups that had come in and well, he was like, so essentially Franco, you'll see this too, that he was essentially trying to uh, bargain and sort of extract as much leverage as possible to get credits and stuff and not having to pay too much because he still wanted to remain on fairly good terms with Germany. But at the same time, he knew he, his country was not ready for another war and probably wouldn't be for at least a few more years considering all the towns they had to rebuild, the cleaning process, you know, quote, quote, unquote, that Spain was undergoing as well. It was, this was more or less a, a case of, you know, Franco essentially trying to haggle for resources and avoid getting into wider wars. And Spain would be neutral, but be friendly with the Axis for most of the war. Mm. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. To heighten the propaganda impact of the Berlin meeting, the news was kept secret until the eve of Molotov's departure on November 10th. Stafford Cripps had heard the news on the radio and was, according to his dinner host that evening, U.S. Ambassador Lawrence Steinhardt, not only surprised, but shocked by the news. 
Crips, who had not been allowed to see Molotov, let alone Stalin, for months, lodged a feeble protest at the peculiar Soviet interpretation of the word neutrality. Privately, Cripps told Steinhardt that he was afraid a new diplomatic accord between the dictators would shake the foundations of Churchill's government. Quote, should Molotov visit Berlin result in more extensive collaboration between the Soviet Union and Germany, Cripps warned Steinhardt, influential circles in Great Britain might begin to press for peace with Germany on an anti-Soviet basis, end quote. In Berlin, the German press gushed over the wise and strong policy of a great realistic statesman Stalin. The stage was set for what could be argued the single most important diplomatic encounter of the war. And boy, was it ever. Yeah. Although we get a lovely asterisk here, um, you know, uh, that that gives us a a look at what might have been. But yeah, um, all, all the more interesting to see what we see here. You know, we have the schadenfreude uh Cripps's discomfort over the summit and all of this uh leading to the the russian campaign mm-hmm. there's kind of a you could probably do a, a wojack or chud jack meme of this <laughs> the you have the the happy you know you have the german officer and the soviet officer looking both you know with their with their symbols like getting along looking and <laughs> the british and the american um, Just screaming in the background. Quit having fun. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, Cripps was also, as uh, the previous chapters have noted, Cripps is also very sympathetic to the to the Soviets. Um, and he's, he's just like, oh, well, that might cause me to be out of a job if uh, we have to change our position of the war on an anti-Soviet basis. But yes. Um, in a sign of the high hopes Hitler and Ribbentrop had for the summit, the Germans spared no expense rolling out the red carpet for Molotov at the Belaruski train station in Moscow. The red carpet was flanked by a dozen German officers in full dress, along with Schulenberg and the Italian and Japanese ambassadors. To the strains of the Internationale, Molotov marched to the train, observers noted, with a pistol in his pocket, accompanied by 50 Germans who would travel with the Soviet delegation and 65 Russian aides, including 16 secret policemen, three servants, and a doctor. The NKVD alone had asked for three entire train cars, and the Germans obliged. Just past 11 a.m. on November 12, 1940, Molotov's entourage arrived at Berlin's Anhaltenbahnhof. It was a cold, rainy morning, but the Germans had done all they could to provide a proper welcome. An honor guard of the army stood to immaculate attention, flanked by Ribbentrop, Hitler's SS chief, Reichsführer Hendrik Himmler, and the supreme commander of the Wehrmacht, Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel. The heavy cloud uh, cover accentuated the visual effect as the searchlights lit up the Soviet flags hoisted along the platform, carefully blended in with the swastikas. A Nazi band struck up the Internationale, played a double time just in case any nearby communists had been tempted to sing, and Molot and Ribbentrop gave a welcoming address. All the Nazi notables then shook Molotov's hand, though observers noted that the Soviet statesmen spent the longest time huddled with Himmler. The immense Soviet delegation was then escorted into a 60-vehicle convoy and whisked off to Bellevue Palace, where the Russians would be staying. Trying to interpret the mood, an American journalist noted that, despite the proper welcome at the station, the streets were mostly empty, but this could have been merely owed to the rain. I like the little detail he snuck in about that. You know, the Germans don't, 
they still have to keep up their anti their extreme anti-communism. So they do. It's like let's speed up. Let's speed up the tempo of the song just so they they can't sing it properly. Yeah, I, I couldn't help but chuckle at that. It, it, he has this uh, this great. He paints he paints a lovely picture as well in the lead up in his tech book about the lead up to World War One. Because the the French were there with 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 the Czar, and it had to be awkward to watch the French Foreign Minister be there with Czar Nicholas II, his La Marseillaise plays, and then after that, it's you know God save the Czar, and <laughs> the these sort of things. Uh, history has this odd way of rhyming, I suppose. However ambiguous the mood might have been in the streets of Berlin, at the Bellevue, there was no doubt that the Germans wanted to impress. Molotov's interpreter, Valentin Bereskov, recalled being amazed by the ostentation of the rooms and the walls decorated with tapestries and paintings in heavy glit frames, and all the servants and waiters garbed in gold braided livery. The contrast with the Soviet delegation, everyone was outfitted in the identical dark blue suits, gray ties, and cheap felt hats, was striking. Even so, the Russians must have enjoyed the opulent lunch while they were served by white-gloved staff in surroundings more elegant than they could find anywhere in the Soviet Union, even in the Kremlin. Others noted the strange incongruities. Vladimir Dikonosov, one of Stalin's more diminutive executioners, amused everyone when he mounted a gilded Bismarckian chair that was so huge his feet barely touched the floor. Uh, that uh, that manlet theory of history just keeps coming back. <laughs> uh, we never escape it. The great no, we, we really can't. theory of history. That should be the update. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Molotov, with his interpreter Bereskov, and Dekonosov were driven over to Wilhelmstrasse, where the real business began. Ribbentrop and his opening monologue ranged broadly over the war, but with particular emphasis on Japan, just as it had been possible to delimit the mutual spheres of interest between Soviet Russia and Germany, Ribbentrop proposed a delimitation of interests that could also be achieved between Japan and Russia. The Lebensraum, living space policy, of Tokyo, Ribbentrop argued, was now oriented not towards the east and north against the Soviet Union, but toward the south against Britain and the United States. England, Ribbentrop proposed, in the nod to the Soviet anti-imperialism, no longer had the right to dominate the world, and it was time for Russia to claim its share in the Near East and on the Indian Ocean. Ribbentrop then brought up Germany, reminding Molotov that Ankara had signed a defense agreement with Britain and France. We know, Ribbentrop continued, that the Soviet Union is unsatisfied with the Montreux Convention on the Turkish Straits, which, to pause real here, the Montreux Convention is still in place today, and it has actually been activated and used since the start of the ongoing war in Ukraine. Um, we, too, are dissatisfied with the convention. Perhaps, he suggested, Germany, Italy, and the Soviet Union could work out a new convention to guarantee that the Soviet Union will have access to the Straits and the Mediterranean Sea. Just to pause, for the sake of the audience, would you like to tell them what the Montreux Convention is? Oh yeah, absolutely. So the Montreux Convention is a convention that was laid out in 1936, and it is called the Montreux Convention regarding the regime of the Straits or just the Montreux Conven um, Convention, as most people know. Uh, it is governing the um, Bosporus and the Dardanelles Straits in Turkey, 
um, signed at the Montreux Palace in Switzerland in, in 36. So it basically has the terms that allows Turkey to govern and handle the issue over these two straits and who has access to the Black Sea and by extension, the Aegean and the Mediterranean. Uh, this has been over long running problems, what's known as the Straits question. The, these were questions that were ranged, you know, since the early 19th century to today from the Eastern question on how to deal with the Ottoman Empire. Uh, originally, the Treaty of Lausanne had tried to demilitarize the Dardanelles uh, and send things over to the League of Nations. Then you have the Abyssinian crisis in 1934, 1935, and the denunciation of the Treaty of Versailles later on in that same time. But anyways, the terms allow um, Turkey to have more or less control over this. Uh, there were certain islands that were demilitarized that were Greek islands, and this leads to ongoing geopolitical problems inside of between the in the Aegean Sea between Greece and Turkey. And um, but uh, various articles are, are there um, for that specific purpose. Uh, and the Montreux Convention has been cited by the Turkish government, for instance, to pro prohibit aircraft carriers from transitioning the straits. And it was used even most recently um, uh, with the war in, in Ukraine, where it has basically said, listen, we're not letting anyone in. Um, their government would legally recognize the Russian invasion as a war, which provides grounds for implementing the convention. And we're going to block uh, naval vessels from going in and out. So now NATO vessels, military vessels can't go in through the Black Sea. It's just a governing convention for what Turkey can do with access to the Black Sea and the uh, uh, Dardanelles. But yeah, that, that's the Montreux Convention. Yep, that seems sufficient enough for me and for the audience. And I think I've done a whole uh, stream covering that topic. Uh, and if not, the, the Montreux Convention itself, at least what's been going on in the Aegean, but yeah, we'll we can keep going. All right. Molotov listened politely, but said little. All that you have said is very interesting, he finally chimed in. Nonetheless, any delimitation of spheres of influence between the tripartite pact and the Soviet Union, Molotov replied carefully, would require precise negotiations over a long period of time. A bit less carefully, Molotov said that the division of spheres of influence between Russia and Germany in 1939 had been exhausted by the events of 1939 and 1940, with the exception of Finland, a matter still far from settled, and to which I will return here in Berlin. So far, Molotov had given very little away other than Stalin's concern over Finland. It was the impression of Ribbentrop's translator that Molotov was keeping his powder dry for Hitler. Again, that sort of uh, get, leave, give as little as you can, get as much as you can, get out of it. Very in line with uh, Molotov and, and Soviet policy. Yep. Molotov, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying, yeah, that's kind of like what, what, what everyone's been trying to do for the last couple of years, the meetings between the Soviet Union and uh, the Third Reich. They were both trying to get as much without... Uh, trading blows or getting into larger border conflicts, and as you and Stalin, I would say Stalin still kind of has the upper hand because, you know, he's not technically at war with Britain or France, despite his actions against Finland, Romania, as well as Poland and the Bal Baltics. It's a it's 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 a matter of you know you could tell like Germany is also stuck because it's like, if we don't get these resources, we can't sustain and, you know, we can't really fight a two-front war. 
So they're they're both trying to gain the leverage and supplies needed to at least keep the status quo going for a little longer. And if you could probably tell, they're also they're doing their own version of a pivot to Asia, so to speak, especially when you have the imperial Japanese ambitions, not just in China, but throughout Indochina into the various islands in the Philippines. Yeah. I mean, again, the, the attention is moving towards the east because Molotov knows they still have the substantial economic leverage that they need over, over the Reich at this time. Molotov was then whisked over to the German Chancellery and escorted with past an honor guard of the SS Liebstandarte to meet with the Fuhrer. All this taste for theatrics, Hitler had arranged an over-the-top welcome as two tall blonde men, uh, two blonde SS men in black, tightly belted uniforms with skulls on the caps clicked their heels and threw open the tall, almost ceiling-high doors to reveal a hall 90 feet long and 50 feet wide. Molotov, dour as usual, did not seem particularly impressed, but he did recall being greeted by Hitler in a surprisingly gracious and friendly matter, or manner. Hitler was a picture of the affability as he expounded on geopolitics, his favorite subject. Germany, Hitler told his Russian guest, has gained, and as a result of this war, enough land to keep her occupied for a hundred years. The Germans, happy with dominating Europe, had no interest in Asia or the Black Sea. Any troops Germany was sending to the Balkans, the Führer explained, were only there to oppose British encroachment. Knowing that Stalin was upset about the German deploy deployment in Romania... Hitler promised that Germany would withdraw these troops as soon as the war was over, and that the British threat to Germany's oil lifeline was thus neutralized. The overriding problem of geopolitics, Hitler argued, was that Italy, Germany, and Russia were denied fair access to the sea by the British. Common ground could surely be found in overturning this, especially now that the war with England is about 99% won. Even if the United States was officially neutral, it was on England's side, which showed that the, quote, Anglo-Saxon powers were bent on world domination. Hmm. I got to say, that is a lot of what we call presentation and aesthetics to just say, why don't we try to get the Soviet Union's on our side just so we can solve the problem of the Black Sea? I mean, if that's how you want to do it, no better. I can't think of a better way. It's that old mind is like, oh, you're a villain. All right. But you know what you lack? What? presentation <laughs> i i will say this though uh the the, the fuhrer being a, a big geopolitics um guy is uh that doesn't surprise me in the slightest no it doesn't surprise me you think all these people play hearts of iron four well i mean <laughs> just just for real you know just for real <laughs> just for real this time just for real this time uh Molotov, once Hitler had finished his monologue, agreed with this critique of British imperialism, declaring it intolerable and unjust that one miserable island should rule half of the world. Anglo excellence right there, buddy. <laughs> but he wanted to know more about the tripartite pact and about German intentions in Finland. Moreover, there are important issues to be clarified, Molotov insisted, regarding Russia's Balkan and Black Sea interests with regard to Bulgaria, Romania, and Turkey. Just as the discussion was getting down to the really contentious issues, it was interrupted by an air raid alarm, the arrival of British bombers overhead giving the lie to Hitler's foolish boast that the war had been 99% won. 
I got to say that circle meme is starting to become more and more true. And they haven't, <laughs> I listen, I mean, no, no offense or no, this is just a meme. It's like they haven't beaten the swarthy allegations that Ben Franklin said. It just, um, I don't know, you're, you're not making, you're not helping the case. And Sam Batch's circle is becoming more and more true every day. I do have to laugh that, uh, you know, the war is 99% won. And then, oh, by the way, here comes some, some British bombers. Uh, it's uh, you couldn't you couldn't write this if you wanted to. I mean, no one would believe you if you said this was fiction, um, and that you were trying to present it as truth. But this is this is just history and how it went. Returning to his suite at Bellevue after his dinner reception at the Hotel Kaiserhof, which he had met the Reich's Air Marshal Hermann Göring, Hitler's Deputy Führer Rudolf Hess, Molotov sat down with his translator Beresukov to write up a transcript of the Hitler meeting to be wired to Stalin. Beresukov had at first tried to dictate a version out loud to a lower-ranking typist, a mistake he would not make again after Molotov brutally rebuked him for his carelessness the Germans having presumably bugged the rooms. Molotov was also discomforted by his receipt of a telegram from Stalin around midnight, at midnight, in which the vaults had rebuked him for vagueness in his earlier meeting with Ribbentrop, of which a short transcript had been wired to Moscow at 4.20 p.m. between the two sessions. Stalin was protruded that Molotov had implied in his remarks to Ribbentrop about the territorial settlement of 1939 being exhausted with the exception of Finland, that the entire non-aggression pact might be up for discussion. The Volts had warned Molotov that he better be more careful when he spoke to Hitler, a warning that would have been less alarming had Molotov already not received it after speaking with Hitler that <laughs> afternoon. Again, you can't make this up. This is just, it's always how, you know, miscommunications can always lead to fighting words leads to uh, suddenly invasions. It, it can just be really that simple sometimes. Yeah. Well, and I mean, there's the, the running gag that all kinds of uh, sitcoms from the 1980s and 90s would they wouldn't exist today because those problems could be fixed by a text message and it's just like if only these guys had gotten the telegram or the phone call sooner you know like these <laughs> again this is the 1940s obviously but it just illustrates how much um, miscommunication has, has played a major role in both world wars in the 20th century both men, now on their guard, Beresukov and Molotov, stayed up the whole night working on the Hitler transcript. To reassure Stalin, Molotov sent a brief sum summary of the Hitler meeting just past 5 a.m. on November 13th, declaring himself satisfied so far. Although the talk with Hitler had been, quote, general, he informed Stalin, the Fuhrer had promised to evacuate troops from Romania at the end of the war with Britain. Hitler's big interest, he says, lies in agreeing with the Soviet Union on spheres of influence. He wants us to focus on Turkey. On Finland, Molotov had noted that Hitler had remained silent, but had promised Stalin that he would raise the matter and force the Germans to discuss it the next day. Upon waking, Molotov had paid a visit to Göring at the Air Ministry, where he had tried to glean inside information about the Battle of Britain. He was yet handed another alarming telegram from Stalin, dispatched at 11 a.m., which spelled out in detail exactly what line the Vaults had wanted him to take on his second meeting with Hitler. His thin patience, already exhausted by Molotov Vague's reports from Berlin, Stalin laid down the law. He instructed Molotov to remind Hitler that in light of Britain's aggressive moves in the eastern Mediterranean, Russia had a vital interest not only in the access to the Turkish Straits, but in preventing hostile powers such as England from attacking the Black Sea coastline. 
In order to ensure this vital national interest, Stalin insisted that Hitler sign off on a Soviet occupation of Bulgaria and in garrisoning troops at the Bosporus in order to fulfill the vital Soviet interest of defending access to the Straits. Molotov had no difficulty grasping the Vought's meaning. Shortly before departing the Bellevue for his final meeting with Hitler, Molotov sent off an urgent wire to the Kremlin assuring Stalin, I got your message. I will be ho ho I will hone in on the Black Sea, the Straits, and Bulgaria. A little note, I will mention that the Bulgaria question was also another point of contention between the German Empire and Russian Empire during the 1870s and 1880s. And much of that had to do with the same fear of influence of who would who would not only control the Dabnu River, but the Bosphorus Straits. And in general, um, you could see it as, you know, Germany under Bismarck trying to counterbalance and basically doing similar things to what Stalin is doing and playing off parties against each other while remaining to be as hands-off or as diplomatic as possible while recognizing that possibly, you know, the clash between a sort of pan-German identity with the then Austro-Hungarian Empire the and the pan-Slavic, the one that Russia was put putting with both ethnic Russians itself, the variation, the sub, you know, little Russians, white Russians, as well as the Slavic people like the Serbs, the Bulgarians, the Czechs. It was, it was a powder keg waiting to happen and is probably another long-term cause for both the tensions that preluded to World War I, and it appears here again in World War II to some extent. Continuing on. Arriving at the Chancellery just past 2 p.m., Molotov, his translator Beresukov, Dekonosov, and the Soviet ambassador V. N. Merkulov were given a rather austere luncheon consisting of beef tea, pheasant, and fruit salad. Hitler explained that in addition to being a vegetarian, the pheasant was for the others, he was abstaining from coffee during the war. He was also a teetotaler and did not smoke either. If this was a way of putting the Russian off his guard, it did not work. Still, Molotov was forced on the defensive when Hitler began the discussion by invoking his remark about the Moscow Pact of 1939 being fulfilled, recognizing the same sore point that Stalin had. The Russian was forced to agree that Germany had lived up to its obligations during the Finnish War, that it had gone beyond what had been promised in the pact by allowing the Soviets to occupy northern Bukovina along with Bessarabia. But Molotov objected that Germany, the German security guarantees to Romanian, the Vienna Award, had completely violated the interests of the Soviet Union and southern Bukovina. Hitler reminded Molotov that Bukovino had not even been mentioned in the Moscow Pact or any subsequent written agreements. Germany, the Führer confessed in a tirade, belying his claims that the war with Britain was nearly over, was engaged in a life-and-death struggle and that the Reich needed to secure certain economic and military resources to continue the fight. Recovering himself, Hitler proposed that it was better if Germany and Russia recognized which areas were most critical to each other and worked together. I believe, Hitler said grandly, that our successes will be greater if we stand back to back and fight together against the outside world than if we face each other down breast to breast. To this, Molotov could only agree, although Hitler's airy stab at solidarity could not hide the obvious tensions over Romania. A more serious break occurred on the Finnish question. 
Ominously, Molotov said that the ongoing dispute over the German presence there could be resolved without war, but only if Stalin was given firm assurance that there must be neither German troops in Finland nor political demonstrations in Germany or Finland against the interests of the Soviet Russian government. Hitler patiently explained that Germany was only interested in Finland because of its production of nickel and timber, and had no designs on the territory. Any German troops dispatched to Finland would only be there to guard the supplies, and this deployment would be finished in a few days. As for political demonstrations, Hitler objected that Berlin had consistently advised Finland to comply with Stalin's demands. Unsatisfied, Molotov said that he was referring not to the diplomacy, but the dispatch of Finnish delegations to Germany, the reception of prominent Finns in Berlin, and the publication of patriotic Finnish slogans criticizing the March peace treaty with the Soviet Union, and so on. Taken aback by the aggressive nature of Molotov's demands, Hitler asked him point-blank whether the Soviet Union had intention on resuming the war with Finland. Molotov's answer was not reassuring. Not if the constant OV, not if the constant anti-Soviet agitation in Finland ceases. Thrown on the defensive, Hitler spluttered that Germany's only real interest in Finland remain at peace was that Finland remain at peace, repeating that this was to ensure Germany's supplies of nickel and timber. To close the subject, the Fuhrer reaffirmed that Finland belonged to the Russian sphere of influence and vowed that Germany would send no more troops to Finland, nor maintain a permanent military presence there. Trying to regain the initiative, Hitler changed the subject to the British Empire, hoping to reorient Soviet attention south, or at least agree on some joint communique decrying Anglo-Saxon imperialism. But Molotov, with Stalin's instructions in mind, wanted none of these anti-imperialist platitudes. Let's talk, let us talk of matters closer to Europe, he said, such as Turkey, after a disquisition on the importance of the Turkish Straits for Russia as the preeminent Black Sea power and the need to overturn the Montreux Convention. Molotov asked Hitler what Germany would say if Russia gave Bulgaria, that is, the independent country closest to the Straits, a guarantee under the same conditions that Germany and Italy had given to Romania. Annoyed at the question, Hitler objected that Romania had requested a guarantee from Rome and Berlin, whereas it was unclear that Bulgaria has made any such request to the Soviet Union. Still, Hitler assured Molotov that he was certain the Italians would favor revising the Montreux Convention in order to secure Soviet access to the Straits. Moreover, he added, because the Romania guarantee involved Italy, it too would have to be consulted on Bulgaria. I mean, this entire three paragraphs, this back and forth between Molotov and Hitler has really illustrates that the German position is not as this sort of the, the post-war mythology of this, this monster that is just, it, it can't be beaten. It, it is, it is on, you know, it's on top of the world. I mean, clearly we are seeing uh, a man who recognizes his limitations when it comes to the the access to certain economic resources, oil, knowing that there's a great power that they are tentatively not allied with, but are technically allied with, and that these platitudes about imperialism really aren't working. Let's get down to brass tacks. And we're beginning to see that um, Molotov and Stalin have Hitler on the ropes. Very much so. And, you know, they identify many of the core weaknesses within the Germans' um sphere of influence as well and many of these countries as we know later on would you know participate in the attack on the soviet union in just about seven or eight months later i think yeah. that the um yeah that operation had happened on june 22nd 
1941 or the 21st. I mean, like I said, it's uh, someone in the comments could uh, help correct that because, again, I always, always they strike on the summer solstice and it sometimes, depending on the year, can either be either one of those days. Absolutely. And and again, like we're, we're already seeing that too earlier on, you know, he and Tonosco's uh, government is basically saying not only will we have the Germans here, but we will pay for it and we will ask for more. I mean, there was clearly the great concern that the bigger threat to these people was the Soviet communism than mm -hmm. anything else. Same with the Finnish who were, you know, Germany's trying to say, you know, tone down the uh, the anti-Soviet um, demonstrations like I get it you lost the war but we're trying to be we can't I mean I know we're sympathetic to you but if you get too angry it might cost us our non-aggression pact because we'll be seen as co-belligerents in any sort of irredentist war effort which eventually comes to pass absolutely Following Stalin's firm guidelines on the Straits question, Molotov was not going to be put off so easy, easily. With the British fleet now active in the eastern Mediterranean because of Italy's invasion of Greece and the Massilia affair is in recent memory, Soviet security concerns about the Straits were not idle. We need one thing above all, Molotov insisted to the Fuhrer, to be guaranteed against any attack through the Straits. If need be, he added, we will make arrangements with Turkey to prevent the British from using Greek or Turkish territory for an attack on the Straits. Once more, and then the third time, Molotov asked Hitler to express an opinion, even a provisional one, regarding a guarantee to Bulgaria. Hitler, each time, repeated his answer. He would need to know whether or not Bulgaria had requested a Soviet guarantee and would have to consult with Mussolini. Tiring of the charade, Hitler alluded to the late hour, and praised Stalin as a man who will be remembered by history forever, and suggested, after enduring this unpleasant encounter with Molotov, that the next time the Vaults himself should come to Berlin. <laughs> what a statement. A man who will be remembered by history forever. Let's just say he wasn't just talking about Stalin. He might as well have been talking about himself, even if I yeah. would say what we you know, perhaps he's remembered for, you know reasons not related to the war and just he becomes the stand-in for you know the ultimate evil let's just say in history you know to the point where as we said much earlier in another session europe would be haunted by the ghosts of hitler not the ghosts of marx yeah uh i i i often tweet in uh sort of poking fun at um at Derrida on that question, you know, the, the West isn't haunted by Marx, it's haunted by Hitler, uh, at least in the liberal mindset, although to some degree we are certainly, we should be more haunted by Marx because um, Marxism, Leninism, and, and, and Stalinism have done more irreparable damage to Europe and the world than um, Hitler ever did. I agree, even yeah. if, like I said, it doesn't, it doesn't make everything the nationalist socialists did justify because they did a lot of damage too, especially if you ask not just the Jews, but the Poles, even said the Greeks or the other, other groups that had um, suffered persecution or mass deaths fighting off the invasions. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm not, uh, I, I am not someone who's willing to, to slap on the Hugo boss and to, to don a certain position, but I am one that recognizes that in the, the grand scheme of an impact on the world and the Cold War that followed, and even to this day, 
one of these uh, ideologies and one of these movements has done far more damage to the world than the other. That evening, Molotov hosted a farewell reception at the Soviet embassy. Unsurprisingly, in the view of the unpleasant three-and-a-half-hour grilling Hitler had endured from Molotov, never, Hitler's translator recalled, had any foreign visitor spoke to him like this before. The Fuhrer declined to attend, although Ribbentrop, Goring, and Hess did join the large Soviet delegation for drinks. Lubricated by vodka and caviar, the party was just starting to live up when the Royal Air Force was once again overheard, or was heard overhead. Trying to put on a brave face, Ribbentrop joked that everyone was safely underground. Our British friends are complaining that they have not been invited to the party. In reality, he tried wanly to reassure Molotov Britain was, quote, finished. Mm. If that was the case, Molotov was said, is said to have retorted, then why are we in this shelter and whose bombs are falling on us? 99% defeated, huh? Yeah. Before Molotov left Berlin, Ribbentrop was game enough to write up, uh, write up and hand over to him a draft agreement transforming the tripartite, tripartite pact into a four-power pact devoted to the early restoration of world peace, that is, pressuring Berlin, Britain to in, end the war against the Axis. The four powers would agree to respect each other's sphere of influence and with boundaries of the spheres of influence to be valid for up to 10 years. As a sop to Stalin, the Germans put a revision of the Montreux Convention front and center, committing the four powers to write up a new convention that would accord the Soviet Union the unrestricted right of passage through the straits for her warships at any time, while denying such access to the other powers, such as the British. Molotov promised to respond after he had consulted with Stalin in Moscow. The mood in the German camp was cautiously optimistic. Agreement on all questions of mutual interest, Hitler's propaganda chief Joseph Goebbels wrote in his diary on November 15th, the day after Molotov left Berlin, a cold shower for the friends of the Soviet Union in London. We can be satisfied. Everything else depends on Stalin. We shall have to wait for his decision. Molotov must have shown skill in fooling Ribbentrop, for he had already made up his mind that there was little hope of an agreement. As he wired Stalin just past midnight on the night of November 13th through the 14th, neither meeting with Hitler produced desirable results. The Fuhrer had shown teeth on the Finnish question, which they had spent the bulk of their time discussing. Hitler had swatted Stalin's Bulgarian guarantee away by deferring to Italy. On the Turkish Straits, Hitler had again deferred to his alliance partner in Rome with the talk of overturning the Montreux Convention, but no approval of Soviet occupation. When Molotov had raised this question again with Ribbentrop at the farewell dinner, Ribbentrop had insisted that Germany, Italy, Turkey, and the Soviet Union together could write up a post-Montreux convention. But neither Italy nor Germany, Molotov had retorted, is a Black Sea power. The only concession Hitler was willing to give Soviet Russia, Molotov warned Stalin, was recognition of the Indian Ocean as our sphere of influence, a prospect so surreal and unrealistic it seemed to indicate contempt. Imagine trying to sell this to some, like, it's a clear, yes, I'm going to sell you this new car. No, it doesn't have the same features as the previous one. No, it, it has, it's not as powerful. It doesn't have the things you liked about it. But hey, it's got automatic windshield wipers. Isn't that new? And I'd imagine if you're the customer, you're like, you're trying to sell me a bag of goods or, or a bill of goods here. Yeah, you're trying to, sh you're, you're selling me a lemon, you know. This lemon is not what I want. Stalin's formal reply to Ribbentrop's invitation to join the tripartite pact was a blunt no. 
All but confessing its offensive nature, Molotov delivered the rejection to Schulenberg in person on November 25th, 1940, in a handwritten note. The Soviet Union would not join the tripartite pact, Stalin declared, until five conditions were met. Were met. First, all German troops must be withdrawn from Finland without delay. In exchange, Stalin vowed to safeguard German economic interests in Finland, the export of nickel and timber. The second condition was that the Soviet Union be permitted in the coming months to station naval and land forces in Turkey at the Bosporus and Dardanelles. Third, the signatory powers must recognize the Soviet sphere of influence south of Baku and Batumi toward the Persian Gulf. Fourth, Japan must renounce her claim on the coal and oil reserves in the North Sakhalin Island. And finally, Stalin demanded a fifth secret protocol recognizing Bulgaria as a security zone at the Soviet Union's Black Sea borders, pursuant to the signing of a mutual assistance pact between the Soviet Union and Bulgaria. Unless these five conditions were satisfied in the binding secret protocols, there would be no four-power pact. Stalin had made it perfectly clear where he stood. The next move was up to Hitler. Wow. So as you can probably guess, not only did Stalin reject the claim, but it's like, no, this is what I want. Here are the terms you must agree to me if I want to join your your little four pact. And you can see they're much more demanding. They are basically, you know, he's, you know, he's completely, he's very much uncompromising too. And you could probably tell this impasse would, you know, he said the ball's in Hitler's court now. Does he agree to these terms? Thereby essentially putting the Third Reich in an inferior position when it comes to influence and bargaining power in exchange to keep having the materials needed to fight the British? Or is Hitler going to balk at this and start preparations to re-examine a possible invasion or defensive action against any type of Soviet aggression? We will find out sooner or later. Yeah, I mean, these footnotes here are particularly enlightening, you know. Uh, the eight-day delay, in part because Ribbentrop's invitation letter is 19 pages long. He's got to translate that from German into Russian, which translating really anything into Russian is a pain in the rear, so I can definitely understand. Um, and then here's the subtle differences. So Stalin had objected to that word exhausted, whereas Hitler heard the word fulfilled, Erfurt, translated, uh, retranslated into German um, or into Russian. So, I mean, some important, again, the linguistic differences, right, all here illustrate a, a huge issue with, with um, yeah. what, what was going on. And this is before they had, you know, easy translations of Google Translation. But even then, that's not always accurate, too, because of the subtle differences in, you know, words and how you mean them, as, as that footnote points out. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it, it's a miracle that we even have these um, these sources, you know, just uh, transcripts of Molotov meeting with Hitler, November th 13th, 1940, you know, number 179 in Russian et al., 1941. I mean, again, right, the luncheon menu, Court of the Red Tsar. Uh, as with any of these history texts, if you want to know more, um, we've been blessed that McMeekin not only has access to a lot of these secondary sources, but also a lot of primary sources as well. So, I mean, uh, as with any history text, I always recommend that people go look up um, where, you know, the, the actual sources came from and these great corpuses of work. Correct. 
Um, but with that being said, uh, Mr. Yellow Lantern 19, where can people find you and your work? Oh, well, thank you. Um, yeah, so my Twitter is the same as my username, and I'm currently on Substack at memoryeternalist.com, working on a few more essays for the month of February, and just, you know, biding my time because the world is full of uncertainty, but it's always good to find joy in the things you love, and that includes doing things like this and writing essays about topics ranging from favorite hobbies of mine to world events to or just a very deep dive into concepts or topics that require a certain level of autistic charm in order to understand. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, your links will be down below in the description. Uh, this video will be available for patrons for probably a week and a half, maybe two weeks early, depending on when I release it. So if you are listening to this right now, by all means, uh, thank you for your ongoing financial support. If you're listening to this after it's gone public, you can access early episodes of Stalin's War along with some patron-exclusive goodies, um, as well as all of the paywalled essays by becoming a channel member, a subscribe star, supporter, or... Um, uh, continuing your financial support of my work on subscribestar.com slash the potentialist. Uh, Mr. Yellow Lantern 19, thank you for joining me so much for uh, chapter 11 of section two. Um, we will be back next time with uh, Stalin's war finishing out section two with chapter 12 Hitler bars the doors. We'll see you all next time. Take care and God bless. <laughs>